Welcome to Off Code, the show where we ignore the cultural codes and have real and intriguing conversations regarding the Black community and ways we can move forward to human flourishing. Hello and welcome to another episode of Off Code. I am Monique Dussan. And I am Kevin Briggins, and we have another great show for you guys today. Um, today is going to be a little different. Uh, there's a lot going on in these streets, and we've got to talk about it. Um, and by, by these streets, I mean politics, Black community, Black church, Funny Willis. We got to talk about it. We got to. We got, because, I mean, what the real heck is going on yo when i was thinking about the title for the show i i asked the question you know is she standing on business for black women because a lot of what i'm hearing is oh fanny willis standing on business she's standing on business she's you know like the real one she's coming through she's representing and i don't like representing who that that was the sentiment when she first came out and people started realizing who she was and she was dropping the, the charges on uh, former President Trump. She seemed like she was well put together. She seemed like this classy lady. She seemed like she was the role model for black women and somebody to look up to until the veil came off. And uh, the more we're starting to see and learn about who she is and how she carries herself, that is really um, that facade is starting to fade. Yeah. So it's just so it doesn't seem like we making it up, we've pulled just a couple of clips from the recent trial where she was testifying. And so we're going to play those. I think it's like three of them. We're just going to play them back to back. And then we'll come on and kind of give more backstory commentary and then really look at the question, is she representing black women? And if she is, is she representing us well? Here we go. For uh, a bunch of stuff. I think we did two different wine tours that you do, which are pretty expensive. Um, I think I bought him. He likes wine. I don't really like wine, to be honest with you. I like Grey Goose. Um, I bought him a bottle of wine while we were there and the sippings that you do. I, I can't remember how many, like four or five different places you go. I remember we went to um, to this place that they do pairings. Um, that was the most expensive thing that I think that we did while we were there. So they would pair, uh, they, they would pair uh, champagne, chocolate, and champagne, chocolate, and caviar. It was a three, and it was like three different things. Sweden, Russia, someplace else. I'll make that up. Talking about outside of that, did you ever pay him anything other than cash? I've only given him cash a few times in, in the course of what we're talking about. So you never if we would go to dinner. Let, him, let her finish her answers. If we would go to dinner, I wouldn't give him cash because he paid for dinner or I paid for dinner. I've given him cash only a few times in life, probably four. Okay. Probably the most money I've ever handed him is $2,500. The least amount of money I've handed him, probably between $500 and $1,000. You never wrote him a check? Ma'am, I don't have checks. Okay. Um, so you have no proof of any reimbursement for any of these things because it was all cash, right? The testimony of one witness is enough to prove a fact. So my question Are you was, telling me do you that have I'm any lying proof? to you? Is that what you're intimating right here? I'm asking if you have any proof that you paid him any of these The proof is what I just told you. 
or was it just a coincidence? Mr. Let's go on and have the conversation. I just ask you whether or not it was a coincidence. Had absolutely nothing to do with this. It's interesting that we're here about this money. Mr. Wade is used to women that, as he told me one time, the only thing a woman can do for him is make him a sandwich. We would have brutal arguments about the fact that I am your equal. I don't need anything from a man. A man is not a plan. A man is a companion. And so there was tension always in our relationship, which is why I was give him his money back. I don't need anybody to foot my bills. The only man who's ever foot my bills completely is my daddy. Is there anything else you would like to add to that? No. Sure. I'm sure we'll talk about it further. No, we're not going to talk about it further. All right. No back and forth. Let's sit down. Next question. My, my, my. Funny, Fanny, funny, Fanny. I just want to say it. Funny Willis. Oh my goodness. She is a character. Um, like I said, the facade start to come off. The more she talks, the more you see her. Um, in this instance, she was completely unprofessional from her body language to her attitude, um, to the way she was clearly evading some questions, you know, the fact that you said something is not proof that what you said is true. That uh-huh. she she knows that, you know, she's just being difficult. Um, go ahead. Well, let's start at the beginning okay. because she said we would. I think she was talking about she would. She took him maybe for a birthday or something, wine tasting, and she said she don't really like wine. She oh. prefer gray goose. Gray goose. Yeah. Now what? First of all, first of all, if you are if you are hard liquor kind of girl, maybe keep that to yourself. I'm not saying like if if you if you out here on the back porch with shots of Patron, keep that to yourself because I mean you still are amongst your peers, your professional colleagues. Yes, yes. So I don't our- know that everybody needs to know you out here. True that. True that. But for our listeners who may not know who she is and what the, what that testimony is about, why don't we kind of lay it out just real quick of okay. who she is and why was she on the stand? Okay, you want to go for it? You want me? To okay, go? yeah, I'll do it. So, okay. funny woman, she's a district attorney. She's the one who is trying Trump in the state of Georgia for uh, uh, allegedly trying to overturn the election in the state of Georgia. She is on, I mean, it's not, she's not on trial. She was being questioned because it has come out that a man that she had a relationship with, who she hired as, yes, he was married at the time, who she hired as a special prosecutor and has paid him, from from what I've heard, $650,000 so far. And he was also taking her on expensive trips, right? And so you really can't do that with someone who works for you. And so, especially using government funds. And so it has come up as a conflict of interest and a a legal ethical claim. And they're trying to see if she should be removed from prosecuting this case. And so... 
the the man, uh, like I said, he was married at the time, and and all of this stuff kind of came out in his divorce papers because his wife made certain accusations about their relationship, and he had to answer to those allegations. And so clearly something was going on. And so the reason you've heard in the questioning of talking about cash is because she's trying to say that she did not receive or there was not improper benefits going on because she paid him back. And and she just so happened every single time to pay him back in cash. No receipt, no ATM receipt, just cash she says she keeps at her house and she paid him in cash every time. And so uh, that's why she was being questioned on that and that's why she was responding the way she was responding. So that's kind of the background of why of who she is and why that why she was being questioned in this matter. So, yeah. And so everything about their finances has been questioned or oh, maybe not everything, but a lot regarding their finances has been questioned. How she paid for things, how he paid for things, what trips they took, when were they together? who lived where and when did did this romantic relationship actually begin and so it, it's been a lot of questions but her general attitude how would you how would you describe her general attitude honestly ratchet ratchet okay meaning well i meaning, think everybody knows meaning, meaning that she put on the classic black girl attitude, right? It's simply, I'm just going to be defiant. I'm going to roll my eyes. I'm going to slouch back. Like, I don't care. You know, it's, I don't know if, if anybody went to uh, high school with, you know, black teenage girls. And the teacher was saying something to them they didn't want to hear. That is her body language. And that is her attitude. You know? Teen- teenage mode. First of all, first of all, you know, you was a handful. First of all, I was not a handful. Well, maybe, maybe, <laughs> you know, but, she was, it, but she's a 50 some year old woman. That's the difference. Yeah. Right. And she's a district attorney and her, it wasn't professional. I'll say that. Yes, it definitely wasn't professional. When I was thinking about what would spark her to perform that way because i do think it was a bit of a performance it was i was wondering about the critical social theories and if what we're seeing is where gender and race intersect so it's more along the lines of you can't tell me how to speak you can't tell me what to think i don't have to answer your questions your questions are offensive your questions are racist like all of that because a she's a woman and she even had she even had some of her answers to that effect of like well for a man it's going to be this before a woman it's this yeah or when she was when she said you know i'm not going to emasculate a black man and so there's there's these little hints of things about gender and race and i was i personally was just wondering "Mm, i wonder if this is more of the meeting of these two ideologies this race and and sex gender thought process yeah i think there's something to that based on other comments i've heard her make uh 
And we're going to play one clip later of her in a church, but this is actually the second time she's been in the church. The first time she was in a church was before this, this trial of questioning things started. And she basically said the same thing, you know, a black woman got to do this and a black woman got to do that. And yeah, she keeps appealing to these race and gender intersections, right? Mm -hmm. And that she's facing this because she's a black woman. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I do think she's pushing back because I think I honestly believe a lot of the stuff that's behind the trial that she's prosecuting against the former president has a lot to do with the belief or sentiment of fighting white supremacy. Yeah. Right? That would make sense. Yeah. I think they, I think her and her clan or tribe and people who are behind her and the people. I thought you were going to call them minions. <laughs> And and the reason and the reason she gets welcomed and accepted in these churches because her mission to fight against the evil white supremacy is a God that's a calling from God, right? Yeah, it's the but, mission of emancipation and the the mission of um liberation. Yes, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, as you you just said, she was welcomed into a church this past Sunday. Yes. To receive a Black History Award. Now, this is the same woman who just a few days prior mentioned that she was in an extramarital affair, that she was having sexual relations with this person in the um, in the extramarital affair, that she had taken money from her campaign funds to pay for things. And yet they st like nobody at any time thought, you know what? Maybe we should give this award to Sister Henrietta over here in the pew. <laughs> like Mama Betsy, she we gonna get this award to her for her faithful service to her grandchildren Look, for three years. Let's be honest. Years. Let's be honest. They couldn't do that because they had already sold those banquet tickets to say Fanning Willis was coming. They couldn't renege on that. But see, they could have. They chose not to. Now, we can talk about the reason why they chose not to, but they could have. They could have said, oh, head to the no. We ain't. She confessed this out of her own mouth. We are a church and we understand what the word of God says. We are not ignorant to the scripture. So we can't raise this hand to Jesus and then, you know, have this hand trying to shake with the devil and sin. You know what I mean? But yeah. instead, that that wasn't the, the case. The I case was you. that they went on with program as usual. I feel you. And the only, reason, only way they can say they're not ignorant of scripture if they're not ignorant of scripture. I don't think that's the case. I'll just be honest with you. Otherwise, she wouldn't have been up there. Well, that escalated quickly, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I think you have a point. I mean, either they're not, either they are completely ignorant of scripture or they're not and they just don't care, which is another level of ignorance. Yeah. Yeah. So let's play the clip from her at the church during her um, acceptance of the, I think it was the Black History Appreciation Award. And we want to thank Woke Preacher Clips for always having the clips on deck. Here we go. Very recently, because you may need this lesson as well. You know, people keep sending me scriptures, and I, and I appreciate those scriptures, but different people from all different walks of life keep sending me this one scripture, and I don't think I ever really heard it till to maybe two days ago. You, people send you stuff, you read them, they just kind of become things you recite, but you don't really think about what they say. 
The scripture they keep sending me is, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. I need y'all to hear me though. They did not say the weapons will not form. And that's the part I didn't hear until recently. Just because they won't prosper, it doesn't mean that they won't form. Even if you feel like everything you are doing in your life is the right thing, and you're making mistakes all along the way, but you're trying, you should not think that those weapons will not form. The other lesson that I've learned in this three years is God ordains those weapons. He puts those weapons in your life to form against you. And if you really understand him, you become in your maturity to understand he does it for a reason. And it's to grow you and it's to make you stronger and it is to prepare you. And so my only request from this family today is, this is a really hard job I'm trying to do. And I am an imperfect human being, but I can literally feel the people who loves me's prayers. If just every now and again, you'll throw my name in a prayer, God hears his children. I would very much appreciate that. So I thank you for this honor today um, because it is an honor worth having when it comes from a group of people such as the people that worship here. So thank you. Okay, I'm gonna go first because I'm not even sure if you really hear. I thought off camera, I could see your soul leave your body when she said no weapon formed against you shall prosper. I was like, oh, surely. I just started singing the song. Fred Hammond. Yep. No weapon. Yep. Yes. I was like, yes, but how similar is that to the attitude T.D. Jakes had when this whole this whole scandal with him and P. D. came out and he got up before his church and said, and even if it was true, all I got to do was turn around and repent. Uh, huh? Yeah. What is said. this callous attitude? This, 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 no way, like, like the things that are happening are not the consequences of your sinful actions, but they are the the devices of an evil one. Yeah, it's the enemy forming these weapons against you because what you're doing is just so righteous and upright and you, everything you do in your life, you're trying to do the right thing. You weren't trying to do the right thing. You was going on these trips with this married man. You, you, you weren't trying to do the right thing. This is what this is why you're in the situation you're in. You had an affair with a married man who worked under you. That is why you're here. There's no repentance in that. There's no remorse. It is simply these haters are coming after me. The hate of the enemy. But what about the wolves? And I'm gonna call them wolves because they're not shepherds. Who let, their, who let her come up into their pulpit and address their congregation. They know better than the ones who let, um, oh, what's the old girl name who ran for, um, what was Stacey it, Devonor of George? Stacey Abrams. Yeah. Look, I grew up in the black church. This is normal. I yes, grew up is. with this. This is this is shocking now because we have clips and videos and stuff like that, but I grew up with this. And the people in that room did too. This is not, this is normal. That's why, you know, you heard the clapping, you had the soft piano playing. 
That's why she was comfortable in that situation. And she knew exactly what to say. You know, is this is normal. You know, politicians, and not just politicians, I'm just going to keep it real. Democrat politicians coming to black churches and and saying all this kind of stuff and campaigning and acting like, you know, we got this cause, we got to keep voting, we got to keep on doing the good work, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And then we're going to sing, you know, we shall overcome and all of this foolishness. And it's just, it has nothing to do with Christ. It has nothing to do with the gospel. It has nothing to do with the body of Christ. It has nothing to do with anything associated with, with Jesus. Yeah. And yet it is the common practice of many, many, many black churches. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and it is, it is, if you want to know why the black community and black culture is in the shape that it's in, it has nothing to do with white supremacy. At the end of the day, it's, we, it's many reasons we can point to, but at the end of the day, it is the failure of the black church. Mm-hmm. And, the, and we can get into why why and when that changed, but the, the current state of the black church is a direct reflection of the ratchetness, the hoodness, the debauchery, the violence, the baby mama culture, the I don't need a man culture, all of that stuff is a direct result of the black church no longer preaching the gospel, no longer preaching righteousness and, and God's holiness and living a life of righteousness and being nothing but a political institution for the Democrat Party. That is yeah. all it is today. And in fairness, I do wanna I do wanna say not every black church. No, like, that's why I've been saying many, many, many. Yes, many, many, but many. the the culture of the institution. Yes. 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 Um, there are so, there are there ahead, are sorry. there are there are solid black churches, but most people who grew up with a black church experience grew up with that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. go ahead. What were you saying? I need to go to um to Bishop Wooden's church in mm-hmm. North Carolina because he got a black church. They will shout. Oh, yes, they got a tambourine, but he ain't about to have all that foolishness. No, no. Or you can go to Two Church. You can go to Two Church Church in Louisville. Mm-hmm. Watson Memorial. Yes. Yeah. You know if your, if your church got a name, Memorial at the end, it is a black church. Yeah, yes. It is. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So my question is, 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 is Fannie Willis the face, or is she standing on business for black women? And Krista asked a good question. She was like, well, maybe it's a distinction between Christian black women and just black women in culture overall. I hope she ain't standing on business for for Christian black women. But unfortunately, I think it is like much to your point in that if you have grown up in this environment, you can call yourself a Christian. I don't have any doubt that Fonnie Willis will say she's a Christian. She even in her testimony said that um, the man, I think his last name was Wade, that he was sending her sermons. I think it was him who was sending her sermons. If, I, if I'm remembering the, the testimony correctly or like scripture or things like that. And so there is a, an idea of God. There is a thought of being a Christian, but all the 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 I's ain't dotted and the T's ain't crossed. In general, when if you want to understand black theology in general, it is pretty much two forms of it. I mean, you, you're going to have your solid Orthodox churches. I'm not talking mm-hmm. about those. Outside of that, you're going to have churches that are 
um, either liberation type churches, and that's kind of more what this church is political, it's liberation, or you're going to have churches that do the political thing too, but they're also very um, prosperity, health and wealth. And so God takes two forms. Either he's there to be for you and in your liberation, or he's there to be for you in terms of blessing you and your yeah. best life now. And, you know, all of these different things about a prosperous life and naming and claiming and all of this stuff. And so, yeah, their idea of God is that God is there for me. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is not the other way around. And so when we think about the concept of the way God is viewed, in the eyes of many, many black people who claim to be Christians, it is simply God is here for me. So. Yeah. And so to a degree, I do think that she's representing a lot of black women, a lot of black culture. And that's really sad to think that you getting all on the stand and being so unprofessional really represents a lot of what people think, especially maybe this generation or like the millennial generation. I don't know necessarily going back to like a boomer generation or the early Gen X generation, but some of like later Gen X and millennials, the way my social media feed has been like, she just standing on business. And if you disagree with her, then you're racist, regardless of, of your skin color, or you don't understand Um, the struggle for black women that have struggled to even get to her position and things like that. And so I'm concerned that she would be the reflection of black women, that she would for some be the pinnacle of what it means to be a successful black woman in our culture. Yeah. um, Sadly she is. And when we were texting about this, um, I mentioned the fact that she is the poster child for what the late Kevin Samuels would talk about in terms of a woman who is professional, she's educated, high um, income, and yet she's in her 50s, she's single. And you saw you saw her attitude on the stand. I don't need no man. She still got the I don't need a man attitude, right? And that's something else to talk about. Yeah, yeah. All the person man that know, took care of me 100% was my dad. You know, like... It, she is unfortunately the poster child for a lot of what a lot of black women aspire to be in terms of success and career and just that attitude. She's, she was on that, on that stand, you know, attitude that was, this is what I should have said. I shouldn't have said ratchet. It was boss chick. It was the Mm -hmm. boss chick persona because you also noticed in that clip in the church, she was completely different. That was a completely different woman at that microphone than the one that was in that courtroom, right? Okay. Um, but yeah, that that is the persona she was she was giving off is that boss chick, and I don't need a man, and you ain't gonna tell me what to do, and you know, um, and so yeah, that that is unfortunately she is the role model, and let's be honest, where where does she live? Where is she working out of? Where is this trial? It's in Atlanta. Atlanta is the black mecca. And she is a she is hardcore representative of Atlanta culture. She just did. yes. And what's so horrible is that people don't see how that attitude is detrimental to our community. So she's a little older than me, not by much. 
And when I remember growing up during that time of, I don't need no man, you don't need no man. Like that was a lot of the messaging from like teachers, from my mom, from different songs, things like, I don't need no scrub or um, I can do battle by myself. That, that whole like yeah. situation, um, it wasn't, I can do battle by myself by um, by Destiny's Child, but they had a song to that, like to the left. Remember that song? Mm-hmm. Yeah. To the left, yeah. to the left. So the whole thought of like, this man can just go make me a sandwich. I don't need no man. He's not a plant. Like all of this messaging does what to our culture? It just continues to diminish it. It continues to break it down because what? I don't need a man, but now I want to sleep with this man. But then I I accidentally get pregnant. I wasn't planning on getting pregnant. Now what do I do? Yeah. Do I abort this child? I don't need a man. I don't want a man. I don't want him to be in my life forever. But if I keep this kid, we going to be connected forever. It like people don't understand all of the cycle that goes, that people are going through with this whole idea of, I'm just going to opt out. I don't need no man. Men ain't that great. I can do, you know, everything for myself. That isn't a part of God's good and intentional design for us. When we see it in Genesis, the way that God has set up humanity to function is very intentional so that we don't have people like Fannie Willis, or we don't have cultures like the black culture that aborts so many of its children. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she is, so she's a high income earning woman, right? So in her mind, and when it came to a child, she wouldn't feel she needed a man to do anything. He can go off if he, if, if he wants, cause she doesn't need him financially. Right. And so, and then women who aren't in that type of financial position, as long as he's sending the check every month, they're good. They don't feel as if a man is needed to raise their child. Right. Um, and so it really is, they don't, they don't feel it as if they need anything other than the financial assistance. And that's why, you know, the government welfare was so, um, prevalent and increasing single motherhood because once the government was going to give you a check, that's all you needed. Right. In their minds. And it, and it, and it's had, it, it has had consequences in our community and our culture in terms of a, basically a generation of people who grew up without fathers. And now men don't know how to be fathers. Women don't know how to relate or respect men. Um, and yeah, and it's just a cycle that is just, it just keeps continuing. It's not improving. You got that right. And I, I think the next appropriate question is, so what does that mean for the girl who's 15, 16, 17, who's watching funny on, on the stage or on you know, on the court bench, like what, what does that mean? Because in the courtroom, she slouched back, she's given attitude. She looks like she's running things. Her attitude is bombastic. And yet she's still in church first, giving honor to God, to pastor his wife. Yeah. Um, for that, it's the merging, like, and and yeah. it's it's telling a new generation of young black girls that you can merge these two, and you'll yeah. be fine. Yeah. Part of me, for the sake of the fifteen-year-old girl watching this, I hope Bonnie Willis faces consequences for her actions, and because 
the first thing that comes to my mind is how does that, because basically she was in a place of, you know, you're, there's a place of authority. You got a judge, you have a, you know, a, a lawyer or a prosecutor who's asking you questions and you're just going to have a defiant attitude. What does that young woman do when she becomes a driver and she gets pulled over by a police officer? Is she going to cop that same type of attitude? At some, they need to realize there are consequences for this, right? There are consequences for your actions. And I already know, even if there are consequences, there's going to be an element of this only happened to her because she's a black woman and it's going to continue the victim narrative. But at the same time, I want young girls to know that it is not, there are consequences for your actions. There are consequences for the fact that she chose to sleep with this man who was married and is her subordinate, right? Uh, She did not do the right thing. Uh, And so um, for the sake of those who are watching, I hope that there are consequences. And I hope there are some churches that are bold enough to really lay it out and say that um, this is wrong, that she is wrong and not simply lifting her up or making her a martyr or a victim of some type of, of system that was just out to get her because she's a black woman, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I, I just, it just goes back to what I was saying about the church earlier. I don't have a lot of hope that that's what the church is going to do, but you know, we can, we can hope. You don't sound very hopeful. I'm not hopeful. I, it, I, but I mean, and, and that is, it makes me wonder what needs to be done to reach the church that she was standing in. Is there anything that can be done to reach that church? Because that church has young women in it. Man, I wish I knew the answer. Maven's immersive experiences are life-changing for students. And no, that is not an overstatement. I have seen it happen time and time again. Students go on these worldview and apologetic mission trips for a week and they come back transformed. And that is why we are opening up the immersive experience to students across the United States in 2024 with our very first open enrollment trip. On July 14th through 20th, you can send your student to Salt Lake City, Utah, and they will be trained and equipped and led through a life-changing immersive experience. Go to maventruth.com and look for the immersive experience open enrollment trip information there. We can talk about the young woman in the audience, whatever, but it comes down to those men that were on that pulpit standing there. That was standing there idle by watching and applauding. That's the problem. They don't have any backbone to speak up. Right. As, um, one church, I think this was on Walt Preacher Clips too today. This one pastor preached the entire sermon based on Fannie Willis say it, and it was titled, she, is it, I think it was, it said something about, something about she answered then quote, the gospel of Fannie Willis. And that was going to be my very next question. Do you think that these churches that would have a Stacey Abrams come in or a Fannie Willis come in or parishioners or associate pastors that support people like Raphael Warnock, is it because they have a gospel according to, which is a different gospel than 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, they have the gospel of liberation. They have the gospel of calling, right? Um, or they have the gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity, the gospel of Kenneth Hagin and, and Kenneth Copeland, right? Um, but yeah, it really is just a, um, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a shame that I'm not hopeful because I don't know how to effectively reach the people who every week go under this leadership, under these wolves. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I also want to make something clear. So I was in a conversation earlier today on social media. And I was making these references and someone said, well, no, this kind of this, this, this also happens in white churches as well. And I want to make the distinction between because politics can creep into churches. We know how that happens. We see, we've seen no Trump sermons where this is the difference between what we see in what what I'm calling the black church and what we see in white evangelical churches. When this type of stuff is in a white evangelical church, it's typically it's typically a French thing. Like you're not gonna go to a major evangelical conference and get this type of preaching. Um, but you can find some church that goes on a viral clip. It's a French to what is the norm on a Sunday morning. In the black church, even though this is not all black churches, this is not the French of the black church. These, this is the biggest churches you can think of when you think of black church, and you're going to find this type of stuff happen. You're going to find Stacey Abrams on the front row. You know, you're going to have them, you know, bringing her up and, and praying over her. And if you go to the, to, if you walk into a black church, the chances that you're going to hear either a political type sermon that has absolutely nothing to do with the text, or you're going to hear, a prosperity sermon that has absolutely nothing to really do with the text is very, very high. And so that's the difference. It's not that it can't happen in both. It is that in one, it's a fringe element. It's not the makeup of the basis of the culture of that church. And in one, it is a makeup of the culture with the, the, the orthodox, solid, healthy black churches are the French churches. That is a reverse so yes, you can find these things in both, but what is common and what is French is the complete opposite in the two cultures. So I think that's good. You know, it, it's helpful to break down because you always get the naysayer. You, not not even a naysayer, but you always get the person who wants to push back. Well, they say white church too. Yes. Nobody's saying that it's not. Yeah. It's a, it's just it a difference. There, there's there's heresy everywhere. Like you know, yeah. like if yo, if you ain't careful, it'll creep in. And it comes in on the back of popular culture and things that people are, you know, wanting to be super compassionate about and all of that. Nobody's saying that it's not there. We're looking at what is normal, what is yeah. considered a, a norm within an institution. And I, I would agree that it is definitely more of the norm than it is some abnormal or some fringe or some fluke that they just happen to have somebody come in and you know, yeah. this is what, what they somehow slipped under the radar. Yeah, no, no, this is unfortunately the norm. And that's why I, I, wa- I want to be hopeful, but I don't know how until I mean, God has to do a work. He has to do a work. And 
It needs to start with the men that are leading these churches. They, they have to wake up. They have to get back to preaching the word of God and not preach and not looking at their Bible for proof texts to go on rants they want to go on, mm-hmm. right? Or for piffy, clever titles and and walking it out in church, yeah. right? And all this other stuff that's just leaving people completely. They might be excited when they leave, but they're empty. That's the saddest part is that they don't have a true foundation to stand on. Um, and they are, they're empty. Yeah. Just what is, what word have they received? Not the word of God. Well, you know what, Kevin, I want to encourage you in this. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Okay, so I want to switch gears. I want to talk about a clip that was making the rounds on Twitter between Barry Weiss and Roland Fryer, where Roland has done extensive research on racial bias in police shootings. And he came to the conclusion through this research that he actually did twice. He actually found found the data and said there's no evidence of racial bias in police shootings. He did not believe it. So he actually said, I'm going to run this all over again with a different group of um, research assistants. Came to the exact same conclusion. Kevin, we have that clip. So I want to play the clip and then let's quickly discuss what this means and how you think the black community is going to respond. Let's do it. I collected a lot of data. We collected millions of observations on uh, everyday use of force that wasn't lethal. We collected thousands of observations on lethal force. And and it, it was in this moment in 2016 that I realized people lose their minds when they don't like the result. So what my paper showed, you'll see tomorrow, uh, like some of you, uh, was that yes, we saw some bias in the low level uses of force, everyday pushing up against cars and things like that. People tend to like that result, but we didn't find any um, uh, racial bias in police shootings. Now. That was really surprising to me because I expected to see it. The little known fact is I had eight full-time RAs that it took to do this over nearly a year. When I found the surprising result, I hired eight fresh ones and redid it to make sure. They came up with the same exact answer and I thought it was robust and then I went to go give it and my God, all hell broke loose. It was a 104 page dense academic economics paper with a 150-page appendix, okay? It was posted for four minutes when I got my first email. This is full of shit. Doesn't make any sense. And I wrote back, how'd you read it that fast? That's amazing. You are a genius. And I had colleagues take me into to the side and say, don't publish this. You'll ruin your career. Mm. I said, what are you talking about? I said, what's wrong with it? Do you believe the first part? Yes. Do you believe the second part? Well, it's the issue is they just don't fit together. We like the first one, but you should publish the the second one another time. I said, let me ask this. If the second part about the police shootings, this is a literal conversation, I said to them, if the second part 
um, showed bias, do you think I would, should publish it then? And they said, yeah, then it would make sense. And I said, I guarantee you I'll publish it. We'll see what happens. So it was, it was you know, I, I lived under, under um, police protection for about 30 or 40 days. I had a seven-day-old daughter at the time. I remember going and shopping for it because, you know, when you have a newborn, you think you have enough diapers. You don't. So I, I was going to the grocery store to get diapers with the armed guard. It was crazy. It was really, truly crazy. So, Kevin, this is a black professor. I mean, he's somebody who, by his own admission, said that he expected to find disparities in the data. Yeah. Um, but he didn't. No. What does this mean? It means what we've always known is that the narrative we've so we're sold isn't true. Um, and so, full disclosure, once you sent me that clip, I went back and watched the whole like it's an hour and twenty minutes. So did I. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was so good. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, and he talked about how he did not like the police because of uh, he he's from he's from the inner he's from the hood, and uh, a big part of his family was heavy in the drug game, and he didn't like the fact that his family was going to jail, and so he didn't like the fact that uh, he got uh, roughed up by the police and guns pulled on him. And then he clarified, well, they pulled me over and I decided to get out the car and walk off. So, you know, he, he fit some context to it, but he just did not like the police. And so when this came out, when Michael Brown and all this stuff started happening, he said, I'm going to do something. And the way he was going to do was show this data of police brutality and shootings and killing black people. Yeah. And when the data was all done, it said the exact opposite. And it, and this is what I appreciate about Roland Fryer. His job is not only to uncover truth, but he is dedicated to finding real solutions to the problem, right? That is what's driving him. And so he could have decided to, you know, bury that data and that research and not put it out and save his career. But he understood that the people in which from the areas that he came with needed to understand this, you know, because if, if we're wasting all our time on something that's not even the problem, then that's a waste of our time and resources. And people need to be focused on the real issues so that we can improve these communities. That's what he's dedicated to. And so the fact that you have a black man from the roughest parts of, you know, of a neighborhood, who made his way to be a Harvard professor who's doing research to uncover, you know, police bias and shootings and then discover there is none. That that is the that should be on the front page of every news uh yep. outlet out there. And we should be having a different conversation today. But it's, but so it's not. And stay at this right. Who who has to have armed guards for simply publishing a research paper? Mm -hmm. Why are people so angry that the data did not show that that should be, they should be happy. Like, Oh, so the police aren't targeting black people and murdering black people in the streets unbiased. Like, but there's no money in that narrative. <laughs> there's no vote in that narrative. 
Can you imagine Maxine Waters promoting mm-hmm. the the black people aren't being plucked off narrative? Come mm-hmm. come, you know, and get right in your senses. Yeah. Yeah. And so and, and so this actually came out in twenty sixteen. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is in the middle of BLM. Um, and so, yeah, what he was putting out there was unpopular. Imagine putting something out there that is so um, groundbreaking that your colleagues say, don't do it. It's going to kill your career. And this is what a lot of people don't understand about academia and research. A lot of it is simply, research is simply a money game. Researchers get money to do all types of research. But you know what they're going to do? They're going to come out with the result that they know is acceptable. You know, that's going to get published. That's that's good. That's going to advance their career. They're not going to rock the boat the way Roland Fryer was willing to do. But his Harvard, this is Harvard. This isn't some small school. This is Harvard saying, don't publish it. Yeah. Because they understand how it works. It's going to ruin your career. And it did. It ended up, you know, taking him down and you know, he's still there teaching now after, you know, um, being suspended for two years. But, um, yeah, the the implications of what this man has discovered and found and put out should be when we talk about, you know, the black community, when we talk about these black churches, when we talk about all of these things, this is what should be talked about because yeah. – it, it is it is really what is true. And it, and he's not the only there's been other evidence and studies since then that, that have come out that show the exact same thing. Yeah. And especially since twenty twenty. Well, actually it's before twenty twenty. Uh it, it got worse it got I don't say worse or better. The numbers changed after twenty twenty, but even after Mike Brown, police became very, very, very cautious of ever yes. shooting someone black. They didn't want to be the next officer Wilson, they said. Yes. You know, and so, yeah, the, the bias wasn't there. It, it actually came out. It was police were less likely to shoot a black person. Yeah. Then. Uh, and still, so. Yeah, go ahead. I still remember the the police officer. I want to say it was in Nashville who got stomped to death by a, um, a criminal. I want to say he was a, a black guy, but literally he like kicked him and beat him to death. And this police officer was armed. Yeah. There, um, there is such a hesitation. I'm, I'm not sure what the statistics are now in regards to hesitation, but I know in 2020, 2021, there was a huge hesitation to, yeah. you know, shoot black men, especially. Yeah. So Mike Brown and Ferguson was 2014, right? <laughs> and so, I mean, it was already a thing, but after 2014, it really became a thing of police officers yeah. just being afraid because as everything we know about that shooting will show that it was justified. And yet, Officer Wilson lost his job, had to go into hiding, you know, all of those things. No officer wanted to, ha- wanted to have that happen. Mm-hmm. Legitimate, you know, um, shooting. And so, yeah, and so, yeah, that 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 narrative needs to be, um, it needs to be changed and dealt with. And the, what I appreciate about Roland is he, he had this bias. He admitted what his bias was. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, he cared more about what was true. Yeah. And I find that to be lacking um, in in many of these conversations. And I find it to be lacking in a lot of our black institutions. We don't care about truth because if it goes against our narrative of oppression and liberation, we reject it. 
Yeah. And any and anybody who goes against it, like a Roland Fryer, well then he's not black. Mm-hmm. Because black is a political ideology. Yes. You know. One of the things that if I were looking at um Fonnie Willis and something that she said in her testimony, she said, um, the testimony of one yes. is is true. So you only need the testimony of one person. Now, biblically, you need two or three witnesses for testimony. But for her, it was the testimony of one, and that creates a truth. For Roland Fryer, he's done tons of research and have, you know, has had to interview multiple people and get multiple data sources. Fonnie Willis can create a truth, which isn't a truth at all. And pump that through the narrative and be seen as a hero. Roland Fryer can actually present data back truth and be seen as a villain. Yeah, because nothing matters more than the struggle. Yeah. She's fighting the struggle. She's fighting against the evil white supremacists and for black liberation. No, nothing matters more than that. That is their gospel. That is their good news. The good news according to Fanny, all right. Uh, and so it, that I, I hope our listeners understand when they see these things, when they hear these things, when they, and they're like, why, why are they acting this way, or why would they allow that, or why aren't they saying anything about that? You have to understand what is really driving the mindset behind it, and it is the mindset of uh, black liberation. It is the yeah. mindset of oppression. It is, and so, and it all ties back to why is critical race theory so enticing to the black community and the media? Mm-hmm. You know, why are they pushed that so hard? Because it fits the it, it 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 doubles down on what we already believe is that we are oppressed by the by the man, and uh, your life is so much better if you're white, and and just all of these different things, right? Um. And so, yeah, that is the, and and this that is why we you cannot simply believe a claim of racism, mm-hmm. because you have to understand how a lot of black people think and walk around, right? And the slightest offense is racism, right? And so, um, people just need to understand that and. I know it's 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 saying I hate saying it because there have been some white people who just said, "Well, just stay away from black people then, so you don't get accused." That's not what we want. That's not, but we don't understand that that is the reaction that we're driving. Yes, and nor is it helpful. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 not helpful to say, "Well, just just stay away from from white people." When there's, and I'll say this for us as believers, as Christians, Christ followers, it's not helpful to say just stay away from this group when the entire body is made up of so many people from all the groups. And so we don't want to enter into this, this way of thinking of like, well, they don't want me. And so I'm just going to go over here because at that point, that that creates just a deficit in the body. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so this is what I 
struggle with and what I, this kind of goes back to the question we asked, asked earlier about how do we solve it? And it is, how do we get our community to see the world differently? How do we, how do we break them away from this spell that the Democrat party, the professors, the entertainers, you know, the preachers have this grip they have yeah. on the people to get them to see that at the end of the day, you've already been liberated. Number one, you've been liberated in Christ. Let's get that straight. All right. For those who are in Christ. Yes. For those who are in Christ, you've been liberated. For those who live in America and happen to have dark skin, you have also been liberated. You are no longer oppressed. Right. Go and do, you know, and so um, and and do so not in a spirit of comparison, because because that that is really what we're talking about. It's a spirit of covetousness and a spirit of envy. Yeah. You know, we look across the river or across the mountain and we see what someone else has and we say we don't have that and we don't have that because what they did to our ancestors. And therefore, until I get that, I am oppressed. Or we look at those who might have what we want, like other other black people who might have, you know, what white people have. And then we kind of castigate them and throw them to the side and say, well, they only got that because they're this Mm -hmm. or because they literally like inside help hate themselves. Oh, that's a whole nother discussion about remaining authentically black right and and in the meantime basically sabotaging yourself like like funny willis right she sabotaged her career she sabotaged this case by her own actions but she can't see that it's simply because she's a black woman people do it all the time with this this thing about keeping it real and trying to be authentically black and not wanting to um assimilate to a majority culture because even early we were oh. even early we mm-hmm. were saying she wasn't being professional well they would say what do you mean professional that is standard that's yes right yes okay so so okay so you brought it up because me and krista we just we we just going alone we had we had a bit of a a, a discussion i'll okay. say about this because i do think that what fani is is doing like i mentioned earlier is trying to shave off this intersection of gender and race. And so, no, as a Black woman, you're not going to tell me how to speak. You're not going to tell me how to sit. You're not going to tell me X, Y, and Z because I'm a Black woman. These are my intersections. And people have been, you know, discriminating against me since the beginning. I would assume that that's a lot of her story or some of her story. But I don't know that I am in full disagreement because of some of my own personal experiences of, well, calm down. Or do you have to say it like that? Or maybe if you tried this wording. And I I sometimes wonder if, especially in this apologetics world, if I'm honest, my culture, even as professional as I can be, I can I have literally sat in boardrooms, I have sat in board meetings, I have 
participated as supervisors and things like that. When I get into this arena, which is a largely white arena, there is something to the, you probably don't want to say it like that. And so what I was telling Crystal was like, you know, I, I don't agree with with Fani. I don't think that she represented herself well. I don't think that she um, was professional. If we use a plumb line of, you know, everyone should be participating at at, at least this level. Mm-hmm. But I do at times feel like there is a standard of like, okay, this is the plumb line. But then you also need to do this extra when you're black to appease some white people who feel like this is this is the best level of professional. And so Krista and I went back and forth about this and I'm like, you know, I, there has to be room as long as I'm professional to be able to say she's professional and like she might wear her hair in an afro. Like why is it or why was it that people had to sue, like the news anchor had to sue to be able to wear her hair like the way it grows out of her her scalp i think there is a thought that well if that's what the news you know owner the the owner of the station says everybody needs to look european and have european style hair then you either work there or you don't and i guess i would have to agree and say yeah like i would choose if i want to wear my hair i don't i don't straighten my hair so i would wear my hair in an afro or i'd wear it natural um but it does seem a little at least racially biased to me to say this isn't like what you have really isn't good enough. Like we we just really want this. I don't know. There's something about it where I have a disconnect and I wasn't going to bring it up because I haven't fully solidified all of my thoughts because I was like, it's an emotional topic still. But I do think that there is something to having a, a distinctly black voice in some white spaces where people want to be like, calm down. Yeah. Or that's a little too loud. Or you can say it a better way. Well, what if the way that I said it is the way that I said it? Like, I'm not being disrespectful. I am just not choosing the verbiage that maybe you would choose. Yeah. Um, Man, that, that is a, it's, it's a tough question because some of this is very unique to the United States. Um because the United States is so uniquely filled with so many different cultures, right? And subcultures. Um, but this is how, this is my approach. Yes, there, there, first of all, there's going to be some people you can never appease, no matter what. I mean, you just have to be, they got to kick rocks. But at the end of the day, if you're in a culture and someone else inside that culture is trying to say, hey, this might be a better way to do it or say it. As long as it's something that's amoral, I say do it. Now, if it's something that is, you know, that doesn't go against your values, you know, then why what why not why not do it? You know, um, because this is what I would say. If I always use the example. If we were over in Ghana and someone said, hey, this is how you do it over here, we would jump through all types of hoops to do it the way they typically do it and expect it to be done. 
And here's my pushback on that is that I'm not in, I'm not being a third culture kid or I'm not being a foreigner to a different land. I'm in a land where my people have been for 400 plus years. And so at that point, I'm like, I don't know that, or I guess my question is, is are, because Krista gave a very similar example, is the thought then that I need to continually live or that Black people should continually live like foreigners in their own land? No, but for a long time, we were segregated from, we, we developed our own subculture. And so anytime you have a subculture and now you're going into the majority culture, there's going to be some differences. And so, and, and it's not going to be forever. Because I guarantee you, my kids who aren't growing up in a secluded black community aren't going to have the same subculture I have. They're going to have the same majority culture as everybody, as the other kids around them, you know? And so it's not necessarily a black thing in terms of skin color, but it comes from the fact that we grew up in distinct black neighborhoods and black schools and everything else, right? We grew up with a distinct black subculture. And now that we're no longer living in that distinct subculture, there are some things that may be new to us that we didn't even think about or that we're going into it. Because if it was the other way around, right, if we was inviting them to the cookout, we would say, hey, might not want to say that like that, you know, you might, might want to say it like this. You might not want to do that, you know, um, don't put your feelings. But I think, I think that that's for a distinct event where I take issue with the distinction is we're inviting them to the cookout. Now here's a cookout where, you know, you might not want to say that around this person or, or things like that, but it within the larger culture, because that white person is going to go back to their, their culture. But the expectation for me is to continually to continually live my life on that level at all times. I when I write, that. when I when I write, when I speak, when I'm traveling, like that's that is a lot of the expectation of, you know, are you is it palatable? Like I used to have this question with I used to tell this to Krista a lot, like I know that what you think I'm saying is rough, but in reality, it feels like what you're wanting is me to make my words palatable for you. Mm -hmm. And I'm not about that. Like, like I'm not trying to be rude. I'm not trying to be offensive. But at some point, I do feel like everybody's going to have to come to, to one, have grace and understanding. But do the requirement then is that all Black people must continue to make things palatable for white people. Yeah, and I'm not. I'm not like you know what I mean. Like I'm not yeah. really sure that that's that that is that that is the the goal or the requirement. I'm just trying to understand like how does like how how else do I think about this? I'll put like this. I don't think it's about making things palatable to white people. They're saying if if you want to be an effective communicator within this space, this is a better way to be effective. All right. Um, but at the same time, I'm gonna be honest. At the same time, sometimes we you just gotta be you, and you just gotta have to say it how you say it, and and be mo. And at the end of the day, if they receive it, they receive it. They don't, they don't. I mean, we're speaking English, right? And so, um, it's best knowing when to pick those battles and when to choose to do that, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's. It's something that we are learning as we continue to live 
outside of the subcultural context in which we grew up in, mm-hmm. right? Um, and not just subcultural context, because even when we talk about you no know, white culture, that's layers. We're di- we're talking about you know, don't mean different class cultures, right? Sometimes you're in a, a higher class than what you're used to being in. It's like, hey, that is the that's the salad fork, you know, kind of deal. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's just, it's really navigating those things. I wouldn't get too hung up on it. Um, these are just cultural, these are normal cultural differences and friction points that are common in a, in a land of 350 million people with mm-hmm. 50 million people with so many different cultures, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. And so, you know, taking it back to, 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 to Fannie Willis, I, I get what you're saying um, in terms of, uh, but with her, it was the plumb line she was missing. It wasn't some extra. Yeah, no, she, she didn't have no plumb line. Her, her plumb line had blown away with the wind. It had blown away. But yeah. no, I, I, I hear you. And then, you know, I also have to think back too of like how much of even my way in thinking about the conversation of things like gender and race is still shaped by my own CRT background. Yeah. You know, so it's it's about yeah. threading all that through too. But man, I was like, she she just ain't letting nobody tell her like how she got to sit. Like, I don't know that I'm bad at that, you know? <laughs> But yes, like I, I do recognize that sometimes my my own my own background also kind of seeps through that lens, and then I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. So it's been a helpful conversation. I don't know if it's been a helpful conversation for y'all, but it's been a helpful conversation for me. Because <laughs> I'll be honest, I mean, it runs. So I'm currently taking a, a business a business management class, and it's on global uh, management and global corporations who have to deal with these types of issues. Not in the United States, but when it's a team from the United States goes over to China to start a business, there are yeah. some cultural friction points that have to be worked out. And it's it's small yeah. things like this. It's not the big stuff. Yeah. It is small things in communication that can be offensive, that can be missed, that can be. Yeah. And so these are good conversations to have mm-hmm. because this is normal cross-cultural um communication and relationships so good wisdom good wisdom all right you guys thank you so much for hanging out with us this has been another episode of off code if you have not liked or subscribed to our new off code youtube channel please do share the show help us get to a thousand subscribers so then we can have our own youtube um name off code we will see you next time bye